So tonight we are going to begin a new series here at Christ Church. It's going to go for six weeks, and it's called Everyday Gospel. And this is a topical series that is intended to address um, from the scriptures normal, everyday issues that we face in our lives. Things like work, things like rest, things like marriage, all these things that are a part of our everyday, the things we deal with. And the big question that we're seeking to answer as we look at each of these subjects and what the scripture has to say about them is... How does the gospel change and impact this part of my life? Our main core value at Christ Church is that the gospel changes everything. The good news of Jesus makes all the difference in your life. And so what practically could that mean for these regular, ordinary moments that you live in and breathe in all the time? That's what this series is intended to probably just begin to help us understand a little bit more as the Holy Spirit is at work in our hearts. And so tonight, we're going to begin that series. And the thing that I want to speak with you about tonight using the scriptures is the idea of health. And in particular, I want to talk about not necessarily physical health, although you should do that. You should go exercise, etc. You should talk to a doctor about those things and not me. Um, But the idea of emotional health, the idea of being healthy on the inside and The scripture reading for the night that I'm going to use, and we'll look at other texts as well as we think about the idea tonight of emotional health and how the gospel applies, is Psalm 88. So if you have a Bible, you're welcome to turn to that. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, you're welcome to get one. There's one, uh, there should be a stack of them out on the welcome table. Please go out, you're welcome to sneak out right now or get one on your way out of the church service tonight and make that your own. Would love for that to be our gift to you. If you don't have a Bible on one of the many mobile devices you probably have in your possession or an actual physical Bible, it's on the screen as well. So Psalm 88 is what we're going to look at. I'm going to read this. We're going to spend a little time here, but we'll be looking at other texts as well as we think together about how the gospel impacts everyday emotional health. So this is God's word, although when you hear it, it might surprise you that a psalm like this is in the Bible. It is right here. In the Bible, Psalm 88, a song of the sons of Korah, written by a guy named Heman, the Ezraite. Here we go. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm a man who has no strength. Like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they're cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I'm shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I'm helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. 
They close in on me altogether. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Let's pray. Father, we uh, come before you now and ask that you would help us to understand, not just in our heads, but also deep into our hearts, what you have for us here tonight. Oh God, may we be a people tonight that know the importance of an emotional emotionally healthy life of emotional vitality because that is deeply connected with our spiritual vitality. Father, we pray that you would make us tonight question and wonder about things that perhaps we've buried deep inside of us. We ask that tonight by your Holy Spirit's working, you would make us more and more vulnerable and authentic, able to name the terror and the fear and the darkness that so often creeps up in our heart. And then we ask that you would come and walk with us through these things. Oh, Father, so often in life, there are not easy solutions. There's no quick fix. And that's often really always true in the Christian life. And tonight, oh God, we ask that you would help us in the difficult, painful, hard parts of our inner life where there is turmoil, where the waves toss and turn. Father, if, if tonight sparks conversations afterwards or thoughts that have long been buried or new ideas that we have not before considered as Christians, we attribute it to your Holy Spirit. And we ask, God, as we begin this series, that the gospel would make more and more of a difference in our everyday life, starting here with our inner life, with our emotional health. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Peter Scazzaro is a great Christian author. He pastors a church in Queens, New York, and he's written a book called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. And it's a great book. I commend it to you. And he opens that book by telling a story that I'll recount for you here now. He talks about he's a pastor and he and his wife had just had a rough couple of years, a long couple of years. And after church one Sunday morning, they had a new, newer family in the church, you know, basically invite themselves over to their house for a late lunch. And uh, just so you know, uh, pastors are tired when they get home from church, and generally they want to take a nap. And sometimes they want to watch the Cowboys lose in heartbreaking fashion to the Packers. Not that that happened today or anything. Um, But oftentimes they just need some space. And Scazzaro knew this, and his wife knew this. They were tired, they were worn out. But because Scazzaro was what he says, uh, he he was emotionally unhealthy, he said, sure, we'd love for you to come over. Come on over and have lunch. And so they sat down and they had a late lunch. And the man that was over at their home just talked incessantly, would not stop talking. No one else could get in a word edgewise. He kept going on and on and on. And eventually... Peter's wife began to sort of nudge him and look at him with sort of a grimaced expression saying, can you please end this? Let's make sort of the social transition to, uh, to move forward in our afternoon. But nothing was happening. Eventually, the man got up to go use the restroom. And finally, Peter's wife, Jerry, said, Peter, we've got to just get some rest. We've got to, we've got to end this. This is, this is terrible. Um, I know you want to love these people, but it's not loving your family to allow this to continue. And I haven't heard from our kids in a while. So we need to take care of it. And Scazzaro said, it's going to be fine. The kids are fine. Don't worry about it. The guy came back and kept on going, kept on going. And he even said, I hope you don't, I feel like I've been talking so much. I'm so sorry. And Peter, of course, said, that's fine. No problem. Don't worry about it. We're having a great time. At this moment, uh, at this point, his wife rolls her eyes and eventually says, you know what? I've got to go find our daughter. She's three years old. I haven't heard from her in a while. So she gets up and leaves and the conversation continues for a few more moments. 
But after those few moments passed, Peter and their house guests heard his wife scream, Peter, come out here quick. And they ran out of their apartment onto the balcony of their queen's apartment complex where there was a swimming pool to see their three-year-old daughter on the third of three steps going down into the pool, standing like this with the water right here. Who knows how long she'd been standing there? Who knows how long she had been wondering where her parents were? But at that moment, Peter and his wife obviously jumped into the water and grabbed their daughter and brought her out. Cazero talks about that point and that story in their lives being, being a breaking point for them emotionally. It, he talks about them coming to a point in that instance of realizing that they were in a spot where their inner life, their emotional life was, was desperately in need of help. He was desperately trying to please people all the time. He couldn't say no to others. He had no boundaries in his life. He struggled with this idea that I want to think about with you tonight of emotional health. I think that's a very common struggle for almost all of us, whether we're believers in Jesus or not. You know, for many, if not most of us, about 5 to 10% of the real us of what's fully happening in our lives is at any given time visible sort of on the surface. We're like an iceberg that 5 to 10% of it is sticking out of the ocean, whereas the vast majority of the iceberg and the most significant and dangerous parts of the iceberg are submerged underwater. That's often the case with humans. You interact with someone here tonight, and what you're getting or what you're giving is only the surface. It's only the tip of the iceberg of what's going on in your life. This idea of emotional health really is about thinking biblically about how to deal with with the lower 90%, with what is very regularly a turbulent and difficult and maybe even painful inner world. It's about becoming conscious of what's going on on the inside of us, of what we're feeling, of where our emotions are, of what's causing us grief or fear or depression or anger. I want to summarize everything I'm going to try and say tonight with this quote, which also comes from Schizero. Here's what he writes. To the degree that we are unable to express our emotions, the lower 90% of the iceberg, we remain impaired in our ability to love God, to love others, and to love ourselves well. That's what I want to think about with you tonight for a few minutes. And before we jump into the text, let me just give you a couple of real quick pointers as we get going, things that you need to know. First... As I mentioned, this is a topical sermon. Normally at Christ Church, we take a book of the Bible and we preach through it consecutively. But from time to time, it's important for families, for church families, to spend time thinking about what the Scripture says about one topic generally. So that's what this is tonight. It's not our norm, but it is, we think, legitimate and valid. Secondly, this is a topic that is rarely, if ever, preached on. I've never heard a sermon about it, and I've never preached on it before. Um, and yet, I believe a topic that is desperately needed um, for us to think and consider together. Because it's super, super important if we're going to have everyday health and gospel life going on. And then lastly, I want to just make this very clear. I'm coming to you tonight from the position of a co-learner. This is not Pastor Luke coming down off of his high mountain that I'm up on six days a week with my face glowing and giving you a sermon and then going back up the mountain. That's never the case, by the way, in any sermon ever. If a preacher ever gives that off, he is doing a good job of fooling you. 
I'm walking with you together in this journey. And for the vast majority of my life, I have been very emotionally unhealthy. And to large degrees, I still am. In fact, this is only an issue I've really begun to see the importance of Marianne and I together in our life in the last couple of years, honestly. And so I'm nowhere... Um, nowhere near arrived on this topic, and nor am I intending to communicate to you, I've got this figured out. You need to start figuring it out now and catch up. Um, I'm learning these things with you, and I hope that you can begin to learn along with me as we study the scriptures together tonight, just for a few minutes. And so, again, the big question that I want us to consider is, is what does it look like when the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is changing your everyday emotional life in healthy ways? What does it look like to grow into an emotionally healthy follower of Jesus Christ? Or maybe to put that in a slightly different way. Um, How can you open up the deep and the dark corners of your inner life to the power of the gospel? Um, I want to use Psalm 88 tonight and a couple of other texts as a launch pad. And a lot of things could be said. What I want to do is, is give you three ideas that I believe... Um, will help us understand how the gospel creates emotional health in us as people in our everyday lives. So here's the big idea. The gospel creates emotional health by helping us in three ways. First, it helps us to deal with negative emotions. Second, it helps us to deal with our families of origin. And then thirdly, the gospel creates emotional health by helping us set clear boundaries. Okay? Strange topic for a sermon, yet I believe a very important one. It helps us deal with negative emotions, the gospel. It helps us deal with our families of origin and the issues that arise from that. And it helps us set clear boundaries. Okay, so that's where we're headed. You ready? Well, even if you're not, here we go. Okay, first, the gospel creates emotional health by helping us deal with negative emotions. Look at Psalm 88. I want you to, I want you to hear what I said. I said that the gospel, if you believe it, will change you so that you will be able to deal with negative emotions. Not so that your negative emotions will be destroyed. Very likely, you will deal with negative emotions with particularly the emotions of anger and fear and depression or sadness for the rest of your life. Um, Because Jesus has not yet come and made all things new. He has saved you if you're a believer in him. And he is in the work of growing you into his image. And while that work is happening, you are in the process where you still suffer from the effects of living in a fallen world. Largely in your emotional life, that shows up in these kinds of emotions. Fear, anxiety, anger, or sadness. So the gospel will help you deal with those, but it won't necessarily destroy those for you like this. The gospel is not like in the matrix, the blue pill that you can swallow when all of a sudden everything's gone and you're in a new world. No, the gospel enables you to name your inner struggles, to name your emotional failings, to name the things that cause you pain, and then to believe that Jesus is walking with you through them. That's what's happening here in Psalm 88. As you read through this psalm, you don't see any good, happy, joyful things. You see the psalmist again and again and again lamenting, right? Saying things like, I'm like those who are down in the pit. I have no strength. I'm like someone who might as well be dead. And moreover, he's bringing God into the conversation. Did you catch that? Again and again and again, he says things like, every day I call upon you, Lord, implicit is, and you don't answer. 
Every day I, I say, where are you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave? I cry to you, but you cast my soul away. And then the psalm ends with him. You know, he doesn't give some pious little platitude, which is very, very important for you to get. He doesn't try to spiritualize his problems away. He doesn't say, but I trust you and you're good, although that would have been fine to say. But he doesn't do that. He ends the psalm. Darkness is my only friend. And he drops the mic. Gone. That's how the psalm ends. And I want you to get that this psalm is written, and I believe largely it's been put in the Bible by the Holy Spirit to show you what it looks like to be someone who is emotionally healthy, not unhealthy. Now, I know that for some of us, we just find this psalm and that idea completely unfathomable. (laughs) It seems unspiritual for us to speak like that especially to bring God into the picture. But this psalm is from a man, I want you to get. It's from a man who knows his own inner life well. It's from a man who is, who is aware of the 90% of the iceberg that is his heart that's submerged beneath the surface of day-to-day existence. He's aware of the pain and the sadness and the grief that life, just living on a planet that is not perfect, often brings. And so this psalm presses on us the question, how do you deal with negative emotions? Do you feel what you feel? (laughs) That might be another way to think about it. And I've, as I mentioned earlier, I have not done this well most of my life. In fact, when Marianne and I first got married, she quickly discovered this about me, that I, am, I get confused when people ask me how I feel. And I, I can tell you exactly what I think, often way too much. But telling you what I feel or how I feel, I'm not sure exactly even what to say. And so Marianne, early in our marriage, by God's grace, she, she printed me this chart. I've told some of you this before. And it's a feelings chart. And literally, it just has a bunch of adjectives. There's a a line, it says happy, and then a line, and then a bunch of adjectives describing happy, joyous, pleased, delighted. And then there's one that says mad. And then there's one that says sad. And I would look at that chart, and and we would, Mary would say, okay, now look at the chart and tell me which one of these emotions you feel, because I couldn't articulate it. I didn't know. I was emotionally unhealthy because not only could I not deal with my negative emotions, I didn't even know how to express or name my negative emotions. So how do you handle the negative emotions of your life? What's going on underneath the surface? The things like fear, the things like anger, the things like depression, things that aren't necessarily sinful. They're just part of being human. How do you handle that? Well, I'm convinced that most of us handle it in ways that aren't healthy. You know, this is a generalization, so don't make this ultimate, but generally men tend to handle negative emotions by suppressing or ignoring. Now, how do you know? You might be a woman and that's what you tend to do as well. That's okay. It's a generalization. It's not universally applicable, but we tend oftentimes to ignore or suppress negative emotions. What might that look like? Well, that looks like what I just expressed in that illustration, an, an inability to articulate what's going on on the inside. Someone asks you how you feel and you're like, I feel weird. I can feel weird that you're asking me that question. That's the best I can do. You you can't articulate it. Or you ignore and suppress it by by withdrawing from an emotional discussion or from having to even think about it. And you often will withdraw by numbing yourself, either with overwork 
or with over-escapism or with drinking too much or smoking too much or doing something like that just to take your mind off of it. Oftentimes, you'll have emotional outbursts as well because you're not dealing with them in a healthy way. They're building up inside of you like a dam, water behind a dam when you suppress and ignore your emotions. And so eventually, they're going to break out. So if you find yourself just sort of randomly crying at awkward times or if you find yourself having outbursts of anger or some mornings you just can't get out of bed because you're so sad and it just seems to have come out of nowhere, that's generally a sign that you're ignoring and suppressing negative emotions. I'll often cry in the middle of like Texaco commercials on TV. And um, Nate comes down, what's wrong, Dad? I'm like, oh, that mom's, she's pumping gas. She is pumping gas. It's so sad. I'm like, this is, this is not healthy. That's signs that you ignore and that you suppress. Other signs are that you refuse to seek help or get counsel to deal with grief or pain. You're deeply confused about what you feel on the inside. You might even have like tangible physical reactions to fear and anger, particularly in conflict situations. You start shaking. Your voice becomes quaky. You convulse. Those are all signs that you are emotionally unhealthy, that you're ignoring and suppressing them. You might do something different in an emotionally unhealthy way. You might, and oftentimes women do this, you might feel shamed or guilty about feeling the things you're feeling. And therefore, you will try to cover them. What does that look like? Now, men can do this, but it's also very common in in women. It it looks like putting on a, a certain face or a mask or performing in a certain way because that's how you think you're supposed to act. And so no one can ever really get to the real you. It also, when it gets really bad, looks like judging other people, a spirit of deep condescension and judgmentalism. It looks like um, spiritualizing away your feelings. And the great Calvinistic way of doing this, by the way, is saying, well, God is sovereign when you're experiencing like horrible pain or suffering. God's sovereign. Well, we know that's part of the problem. God's sovereign. Why is this happening? Like, that doesn't just give throwing out your little good doctrine in a little pithy statement. doesn't, like, alleviate the pain you're feeling. That's just trying to spiritualize it away. Or when you I'm just trying to have joy in suffering. I'm glad. But can you at least say that suffering really stinks? Like, just admit that you're suffering, that this is hard. You'll, you'll spiritualize it away. Another thing you'll do is you're, you'll, you'll overshare with the wrong person at the wrong time. It's like sort of emotionally vomiting on someone. It's like what the men do, that the the water's building up behind the dam, and they usually have an outburst of anger or an outburst of sadness. Women, they'll go and have a couple glasses of wine with their girlfriends, and it's just... Those are all signs that you are not in a place where you are dealing with your negative emotions in a way that's healthy. And here's what I want you to see. I know this, this sounds like a counseling session, but it's very important. The power of the gospel enables you... It enables you to look at the darkness inside of you, to look at your fear and your sadness and your anger, and not just to wish it away, not just to say some little magical incantation and hope that it'll disappear, and not to ignore it any longer, but to believe the gospel actually can help you in it. How does the gospel do that? Well, the gospel tells you, and we talk about this all the time at Christ Church, the gospel tells you, before it tells you the good news, it tells you that you're actually a lot worse than you think. Welcome to Christ Church. You're worse than you think you are. There's good news. The gospel, the good news of Christianity actually tells you that God knows your inner life much, much better than you know your inner life, even if you're emotionally healthy. 
God knows the full 90% of that iceberg that's submerged in your heart. And God, in Jesus, still delights in you. He loves you. He cares for you. He has brought you into his family and made you one of his children. He honors you with all spiritual blessings in Jesus. And he knows you fully. So if God knows the full, deep, dark recesses of your emotionally emotionally fragile state, then that frees you to begin to acknowledge those things yourself. And not necessarily fix them tomorrow, but work on them as Jesus walks with you through them. You're just going to suffer in life. You're going to be angry. You're going to be afraid. It's not something that's going to go away. But the gospel really does mean that God knows those things and still loves you. And Jesus is walking through those things with you. Because guess what? Jesus experienced those things too. Isn't that amazing? That's unique to Christianity. God became a man who was the most emotionally healthy person who's ever lived. Right? Jesus felt sadness in the garden of Gethsemane. Jesus felt anger when he walked into the temple and saw the money changers. Jesus, I think, might even have felt fear in the garden. And yet, we know Jesus didn't sin, but he was able to deal with these things. He was able to trust God in them and live in the midst of a broken world. In order to grow spiritually, you must be able to grow in embracing, so to speak, the negative emotions that whirl underneath your life so often. And walk with Jesus, not around them, not over them, not under them, but through them. That's the longest point. Second, okay, the gospel creates emotional health first by helping us deal with negative emotions. And second, the gospel creates emotional health by helping us deal with our families of origin. This will be fun. Um, A second major factor is in gaining emotional health is dealing with your past. And in particular, your family, the people that you grew up with. And uh, I get the opportunity as a pastor all the time to meet with people and hear their stories. You know, new visitors to the church and people that aren't following Jesus that I'm talking to and other leaders in the community and and church members. And, And one almost, well, it is universal, but I almost always hear it. A common thread in hearing people's stories is that they come from a family that was just messed up. They, their family has, has sort of jacked them up <laughs> on the inside and on the outside. They've got issues in their past, particularly oftentimes with their family of origins. And uh, I think it's important that we realize, and I think Christians are particularly bad at realizing this, that there's nothing on a human level that shapes you more than your family. Nothing. And if you were adopted, then you're kind of getting a double whammy because the genetics shape you from your parents, your birth family, but then the nurture of your adopted family shapes you too. So you're like doubly dealing with families of origin here. Uh, All of us are desperately affected, deeply impacted by our families of origin. And you see this in the Bible all the time. I've been reading through Genesis as we start our yearly Bible reading. And one thing that strikes me as I read through Genesis again, and I've read Genesis a lot, and I've never really noticed this before, that Abraham, remember when Abraham gives Sarah, his wife, to Abimelech? He says, this is my sister. I don't want these guys to do anything bad to me. This is my sister. Enjoy her, basically. Very, very bad. A couple years later, next generation down, Isaac marries beautiful Rebecca. Great, healthy things going on. And then Isaac runs through Abimelech's territory. And what does Isaac do? Same exact thing. Hey, this is my sister, Rebecca. And then he tries to justify it later on by all sorts of weird stuff. He does the exact same thing his dad did. 
You see generational sins, family of origin issues rising up all the time in the scriptures. You see that in the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, after the fourth commandment. Jesus says, God says, honor your father and your mother, and it will go well for you. You will live long in the land. And then all through the scriptures, you see God will punish those who are unfaithful to the generation, third and fourth generation. You see that with the kings of Israel all the time. They repeat the same mistakes of their family of origin. But you also see that God will bless to the thousandth generation, family of origin, those who are faithful and keep my commandments. Family of origin impact is all over the Bible. And if you're ever going to be a person that's emotionally healthy, you've got to begin to dig into how your own past has affected your present. And Christians, I think, are worse at this than most people. I guess it's because we believe rightly that we are brought into a new family when we get saved. We are. But that doesn't mean that all of the brokenness of our family of origin just sort of immediately eliminated. And what I tend to see is two different ways that Christians tend to underemphasize and therefore live in an emotionally unhealthy way their family of origin. One way they do it is if they tend to be from actually a really relatively healthy family. And obviously, that's a big deal. I mean, God God has been gracious to you. If your parents are still both alive and they're still together, and if you weren't abused... And if you, you know, your parents talked to you about Jesus and read you the Bible and prayed for you, do you know that that's an extremely rare exception? That's awesome. And a lot of Christians come from that sort of background, which is great. And yet, oftentimes I've seen that even in our relatively healthy families of origin, we tend to make an idol out of family. And therefore refuse to, to deal with any brokenness or sin patterns that have been passed down. And I've often heard people say, you know, my family was really great. We didn't have any issues. I'm like, are you, what is wrong with you? Like you've got, that's an issue right there. You've got one. Let's start there. You just said you don't have any issues. Issue number one. You said your family didn't have any issues. Issue number two. And Christians will think, I grew up in a healthy family. Everything was good. That, that's, you probably did grow up in a healthy family relative to most people on the planet. But oftentimes, because you grew up in a healthy family, you can minimize the pain and the brokenness and the suffering that just inevitably come down from generation to generation. And so you don't think you need to go back and think about how your past has impacted you. The other way Christians tend to undermine the importance of family of origin stuff is by just saying, you know what, my family stunk. Or my parents weren't Christians. Um, my dad was totally emotionally absent. Uh, you might have been abused physically or sexually or emotionally or verbally. Um, You might have been abandoned. Things might have been really, really bad. And you became a Christian by God's grace. And now you're thinking, I am starting over. Just by sheer force of will, right? I am not going to do it that way. I'm going to create a a new start. I'm going to do it. Me, me, me. I'm going to. And, And what eventually happens 10 years down the road is you begin to see more and more and more how you're just like your dad. Or you're just like your mom. You're not quite as broken and Jesus has saved you, but man, you see so many tendencies and it sends you into despair. It makes you feel like a failure. The problem is that you, you think that just by sheer force of will, you can eliminate the tentacles of your past. And it's not possible. So what emotionally healthy Christians do and what's going to enable us to grow in Jesus is when we can turn and face our past and name the issues that we struggled with, and believe that the gospel really can change us over time. Um, and really, that's, that's something that Jesus also had to do. You know, Jesus came from an emotionally broken family. 
You read the genealogy, Matthew 1. There's prostitutes in Jesus' family tree. There's murderers. There's idolaters. There's everything you can imagine. Jesus had to deal with an emotionally broken family. They even came to him in his ministry and said, what are you doing, Jesus? You're embarrassing the whole family, right? Get out of here. Quit preaching. Come back home and start doing carpentry in Nazareth, right? I know you say you're the Messiah, but come on. This is shame. You're shaming your whole family. There's no honor here. Jesus had to deal with that. And the way Jesus dealt with it was by, by believing that, that there is a new family. <laughs> that by God's grace, you are, your ultimate family now is the family of God. And God has given you the grace to experience change. And yet you won't really begin to experience that change on the way that, in the way that the Holy Spirit desperately longs for you to experience it until you're willing to look at the brokenness of your past. And when you're willing to look at the brokenness of your past and deal with those things over the process, you will see God changing you through the gospel. I'm still thinking about that myself, but that's an essential element to becoming an emotionally healthy person and to living out the gospel every day. Last thing, the gospel creates emotional health first by helping us deal with negative emotions, second by helping us deal with our families of origin, and then third by helping us set clear boundaries. Okay, Um, seeing the gospel bring us to a place of healthy inner life means that we set clear boundaries in our life. Now, what do I mean by boundaries? One psychologist tells the story of a porcupine colony. Apparently, there aren't many porcupine colonies. Porcupines tend to be loner sort of animals. And yet, when weather gets really cold, porcupines find that when they gather together, their bodies generate more warmth, and they're able to be more comfortable and survive the winter, right? But when the porcupines get too close to each other, when the boundaries that they've set up are overrun, they start poking each other with their needles. And they're much, much less pleasant to be around. You see, a boundary, a boundary is just an invisible property line that shows me, it shows you where your responsibility for yourself begins and where your responsibility for others ends. And your boundaries are going to be different with different people. And not everybody's going to have the same kind of boundaries, but a boundary is something that you set up in your life so that you don't become, in an unhealthy way, dependent on someone else or that someone else doesn't become, in an unhealthy way, dependent upon you. That's what we call codependency. Boundaries are a super, super important thing. And by the way, the idea of boundaries are all over the Bible as well. Let me just give you one example of many. Um, Think about Jesus with the rich young ruler. Luke 19. Rich young guy, good-looking dude, a guy that you would want to start a church with, comes to Jesus, and he's eager and earnest and very religious. And he says, Jesus, I have kept all the Ten Commandments. What do I need to do to be saved? What else? i got a lot of money. I'm happy to give it to you. I know a lot of people that I can use to form a core group for the kingdom of God. I'm happy to help you. I'm missional. I'm everything. I've got it. And Jesus says, well... You need to give everything you have to the poor and come follow me. Because he goes right to the guy's heart. And he knows that that's the one thing he's unwilling to give up. And the rich young ruler, Luke tells us, he hears Jesus' words and he walks away. Now, someone who doesn't have clear boundaries and who desperately wants a big, healthy, successful ministry is going to run after that rich young ruler. Say, whoa, 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 wait, 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 wait. Let, maybe there's something else we can do. Uh, Because he's thinking, man, this guy would be great to have on my team. I need his money. (laughs) I need his good looks. I need all the things he can bring. And so I will do whatever it takes to get this guy. Let Let me serve you. 
rich young ruler, because you are going to be essential to my team. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus sets up a boundary. He says, you're responsible for yourself at some point. You've got to do this in order to enter into the kingdom. And he's unwilling to to give away his ideals, to give away who he is, to go beyond what's necessary in order for this guy to, to do what Jesus would want, what we would think Jesus would want him to do. There's all sorts of other examples of that in boundaries in the Bible. Uh, it's a very important thing to do in order for us to have emotional health. Um, the reason for that is oftentimes, in fact, almost all the times, I'm almost done, hang with me. Almost all the times, the reason that we fail to set clear boundaries in our lives is because of fear. You fear that people won't like you. You fear that you won't be in control. You fear that you won't be the life of the party. You fear that others might reject you. You fear that if you don't do this or if you don't go to this or if you don't say this, then you're going to, you're going to experience abandonment. You're afraid. And so you let people run all over you. How do you know if you don't have healthy boundaries? Well, take your family, for instance. If you feel like super guilty anytime you miss, say, a birthday party or a celebration for your extended family, and if your family kind of ribs you and is passive-aggressive and makes you feel bad about it, that's a sign that the boundary there needs to be set more clearly. Another example is if you're like deathly afraid as your kids grow up to, to let your kids sort of just experience the world and experience sort of some low-grade suffering even in healthy and appropriate ways. If you want to keep them in and, and sort of be a helicopter parent, that's a sign that you don't have a, a healthy boundary there. If you find someone in your family constantly and persistently taking advantage of you and abusing you and living off of you and you find yourself giving in again and again and again, that's a sign that you don't have a healthy boundary. And all of these unhealthy boundaries... You tend to think that not doing these is actually what Jesus wants me to do because Jesus wants me to serve people and love people and sacrifice myself for people. Yeah, Jesus does want you to do that, but he wants you to do it in a way that's not going to destroy your heart. And really what's happening when you're letting all these boundaries go away is that you're becoming bitter, you're becoming angry, you're becoming depressed, you're feeling more and more lonely and less and less understood. Your emotional health meter is declining rapidly. In order to achieve the kind of emotional health and therefore spiritual health that God calls us to, we need to set up boundaries that are healthy. We need to understand what our responsibilities in a given relationship are and what another person's are. And that takes a lot of conversation. It takes a lot of wisdom. It takes talking to people much wiser than me like counselors. But it's essential. And it's biblical if we're going to grow in emotional health. And let me close with this. The gospel is what will help you to do that too. How? If you don't have healthy boundaries, if you are a people pleaser and can't say no ever, you really get your self-worth after by feeling that other people like you and appreciate you. That's what makes you feel loved. That's what makes you feel accepted. That's, that's what makes you feel good on the inside. And so because you so want to feel approved of and loved and feel like you have self-worth, you will just do anything for people, even if it's killing you. You have no boundaries. People run all over you all the time. The gospel tells you, the gospel tells you that your worth is not in what you do for other people and how much other people love and appreciate you. The gospel tells you that your worth is in what Jesus has done for you on the cross. 
God deems you to be valuable, not because you're the people pleaser, life of the party, guy or girl that everyone loves. God deems you to be valuable because he sent his son to die for your sin on the cross and to raise him up from the dead so that you might receive life. Your worth is secure through the gospel in Jesus. So set up some boundaries and live emotionally healthy lives. Be willing to say no. Look at the inner life that you have and think, how does the gospel affect my sadness and my fear and my anger? Think about how your past has impacted your present and be willing because you're secure in Jesus to look deep into the dark recesses of your story and know that this is probably always going to affect me negatively in this life. But yes, Jesus is coming back. And yes, Jesus can help me now in the midst. Friends, these are difficult issues. These are things that I've just begun to scratch the surface of in my own life. And yet I believe there are things that God calls us as his people to think about and to practice by his grace. I want to close with this quote from Madeline L'Engle, who is a great novelist. She wrote this. When we were children, we used to think that when we were grown up, we would no longer be vulnerable. But to grow up is to accept vulnerability. To be alive is to be vulnerable. The gospel enables us to be vulnerable, to really know ourselves, and then rest in Jesus, who also knows us and yet still loves us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for time together, considering um, what for many of us might be new, what to me in many ways is very new, and yet also such important things for just our day-to-day lives. Father, so many of us, even now, Um, come to church here tonight and we smile and we have a good experience and we make friends and we're in a community group and we listen to sermons and we go to the Bible studies and Lord, we really are enjoying ourselves here. And yet inside, so much of us is full of deep, deep sadness, of deep fear or anger. And we just don't know what to do with that, God. We, We might not even be aware of it. And Father, I I ask that you would help us to believe that Jesus came to save all of us. He came to save our, our emotions and transform them into his image. He came to change and ultimately wipe out our sadness and our anger and our fear and our worry. And Father, I pray that we would be a people that begin to just creak open ourselves to the light that you long to shine into our hearts. And help us to do that in community because we can't do it alone. Help us, O God, to begin to look inward and feel ourselves, to understand who we are, to look back in our story and see how it has formed us, and then to look to you in faith, because you have promised to walk with us through these things. God, these are hard. These are difficult. These are things that we don't all have clarity on. So help us also to live in in the gray, to live in the uncertain to live in a life where there is much confusion because we know that you understand it all, that you are good and kind and that you are for us and not against us. May we trust you in that. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.